when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with Sunday Times bestselling author Kate Thompson. Let's find out about her writing process and newest World War II novel, The Little Wartime Library. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Hi, everybody. My name is Kate Thompson, and I am the author of The Little Wartime Library. Can you introduce our listeners to your novel, The Little Wartime Library? Sure. So um, The Little Wartime Library is based on a true story. It's based on the story of, uh, it was a remarkable story to me, about how during the first night of the Blitz, uh, when Bethnal Green Library took a a direct bomb, uh, crashed through the roof of its adult lending library, destroying half of the library, the librarians there who were very innovative and pioneering um, could have been forgiven for running for the nearest shelter. They didn't. They salvaged 4,000 volumes and they took them underground to what was then uh, known as Bethnal Green Tube Shelter, And they built this remarkable little library over the tracks of the underground tunnel. And that's how it came to be, this little wartime library that operated um, throughout the duration of the Second World War, offering, you know, the solace and the sanctuary and escapism of books to to war-weary Londoners. So that's that's the true story (laughs) in a nutshell. And I have been waiting so patiently to learn more about your research process. You um, you have been writing World War II novels for a while, especially set in East End. And you've actually interviewed individuals that have lived the Bethnal Green Tube Station during World War II and survived the Bethnal Green Tube disaster in 1943, which I didn't know much about that as well. Have, yeah. Can you share a little bit about your prep process and and doing all that research oh of course yeah I mean I have to say that research is my comfort zone um, I'm very happy when I'm sitting in in an elderly lady's front room with a cup of tea perched on my lap listening to that wonderful unfiltered gush of social history that's my happy place um so yeah that's how I do I've been writing novels set in the east end of London for a good 10 years now um, and I've worn out a lot of shoe leather over the years just going to women's houses and and listening to that wonderful unfiltered gush of social history. And so I actually found out about the underground library from a wonderful lady that I met called um, Pat Spicer, who's in her 90s. Um, and she was this ravishingly beautiful woman, young woman during the during the Blitz. And, and I sat down and I said to her, oh, it must have been awful during the Blitz. How did you cope with it? And she said to me, oh, no, dear. She said, I had a wonderful time. She said, she said I used to sleep underground at Bethnal Green and she said I would get up in the um, and I would wander down the long gloomy tunnels and I would go into the underground library and I'd borrow a copy of Millie Molly Mandy and she said and that little underground library um, sparked a lifelong love of reading and I sort of it just stopped me right in my tracks because from everything that I knew about the Blitz, that it was this terror, obviously it was a terrifying time. Lots of people sought the sanctuary of the underground and you see all these Henry Moore um, drawings of people sleeping in a kind of long amorphous huddle down a dirty underground platform. Now, in most cases that's true, but there are always exceptions and surprises in history. And Bethnal Green Underground Shelter was the anomaly because it wasn't at that point a working tube shelter it was being, um, at the outset of war, it was being connected to the central line, which is an underground tunnel. But when the war broke out, building work was suspended, and so it was locked up and, and left to the rats. But what happened is during the Blitz, it was transformed from this dark, sort of abandoned um, underground tunnel. And it was transformed into a fully functioning subterranean community with an astonishingly advanced array of facilities. So as well as the library, there was a shelter theatre that had had seats for 300 people where Sadler's Wells Ballet performed and Russian opera singers and they had wartime weddings. And then next to that was a a creche or a, a children's nursery where women could leave their children and then go on to, you know, these newly enfranchised women could then go off to war work. So it took all the communities that they had above ground and plunged them 78 feet below ground. And so it was this astonishing, vibrant, subterranean community where women could borrow books and go to the doctor and see a show and go to the cafe. And they even had doctor's quarters. So 
I think we have to see this in the context of the times that this was pre-welfare state. So this was incredibly advanced stuff. So it really shook me up. And, and, and so Pat telling me about that made me realise, oh, wow, what an astonishing little underground village this was. So it was thanks to that one-to-one -one conversation with this wonderful Blitz woman that I was that I was able to uncover this story. So that's why, for me, it's always best to go out and, and interview what historians would call primary sources, but I just call magnificent women. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> I would love a cup of tea with all the women, and it find that would be my happy place too. So I'm just going to oh, live vicariously through your experience. Come, I go and see Pat. You can come with me. We'll oh, all sit please, and eat a biscuit together. <laughs> that would be lovely. We would love that. But yeah, I mean, the, these women are astonishing, and I think their stories. You know, I always say this about wartime women especially working class women, that they may not have instigated history, but they were forced to react to it. So their stories take the true temperature of the times, you know, they reveal the, the, the minutiae of, of history. And I think they're so much more powerful in some ways than establishment histories. I always find them more fascinating and, and more real and authentic than anything you can read in a history book, you know? You described a, a vibrant kind of community down there. So I the question I kind of have for you is, how do you think you would have handled living underground? <laughs> I thought myself, I thought the same thing myself. I have to be honest. I think, you know, these women were so incredibly strong, especially the mothers, you know, had to go down there with huge families and juggle rations to, to feed many mouths and, you know, often got up in the morning while the raids were still going on to clock on to the first of their jobs, you know. Um, I don't... Uh, and, and I think that strength was very much tempered in the fires of the Blitz. So I think it's very hard to say unless you were actually in that time frame. I don't think I've got the strength, um, if I'm honest, or the resilience. I think I would have crumbled after a couple of nights. <laughs> but I, um, I would love to, have, I, you know, I often say to friends, you know, that I, I have this fascination for wartime history and I'd love to get a time machine and just take myself to Bethnal Green and just walk through those echoey tunnels and, and listen to the music coming out of the theatre and see people reading their books by candlelight. You know, if I could find a time machine to transport me there, I'd love that, but possibly just for one day only. I don't think I could put up with the Blitz, the V2 rockets, the rationing, the deprivation. <laughs> How about you? How would you have coped, do you think? Uh, I'm not a big fan of underground areas, so I'm, I'm gonna Are say, I'm gonna be just a full on, nah, we're good, we'll, we'll, we'll take our chances. <laughs> Yeah, I think and it's interesting as well when we talk about the concept of being underground, because one of the big things that came across so often when I talked to people was the smell. You know, you have to imagine there were 7000 people sleeping down there at the height of the bombardments and there was not a single shower, you know, that there was um, chemical toilets. But everybody talks about you can imagine the, the crush of so many bodies, what a kind of soupy stew of smells it must have evoked the smell from you know of frying bacon from the cafe and body odor mixed with the smell of carbolic to which they used to do to fumigate the tunnels every morning so that's one thing I think must have been really difficult the lack of privacy and hygiene so yeah I don't think I could have hoped for more than a day <laughs> and so then you admit it where she added people now I'm definitely taking my chances up <laughs> That's so funny, yeah. <laughs> You're going to walk on by that one. <laughs> I guess, you know, I mean, and, and so many people I spoke to, they just said, uh, for some, it was it was a wonderful place. For others, it was a nightmare. No two people's war stories are the same. But I guess at the end of the day, it did represent safety. You know, at 78 feet below ground, it was one of the few deep level shelters in the East End. You know, above ground, people were taking their chances in Anderson shelters or cramped into church crypts or ditches in the park you know so it was sort of do or die really at that stage but it's it's certainly a visceral experience I think thinking of the underground shelter and you really evoke a lot of the senses when in your writing when you mentioned the smell that was definitely something I remember is you just kind <laughs> of all both the visuals and and a little bit of all of the senses so how do you incorporate that into your your writing 
Oh, well, I just, it's always uppermost in my mind. I remember listening to a fascinating interview with an English author called Jilly Cooper. And she said, yes, I always try to evoke all the senses in my writing. I think it gives it a much more visceral, evocative quality. And so when I go out and interview people, I do say, well, what did it smell like? What did it taste like? What did it feel like? And, and for me, that's a really good way of walking someone back into the past. To, th there's a sort of, it kind of adds an extra layer of depth to writing when you can sit there you really feel like you're there when you can you know you can get a sense of what things smelt like and, and and sounded like and one of the other really interesting things about it was the the sound quality underground I, I met this incredible wartime lady called Minxie which is such a great name isn't it and she um Minxie and her sisters used to had a, a had a singing band they used to sing harmonies underground to drown out the sound of the bombs and she said oh one of the wonderful things about being underground because of the curved roof it gave the underground tunnels a great acoustic quality so she said when we sang it kind of echoed up the tunnels and I really had that in my mind as I was writing what that must have felt like as well and and also the act of reading underground you know when we read by daylight or you know wherever it's it's very easy but obviously can you imagine reading underground by candlelight but then the flip side of that is I wondered whether it when you're um you have no access to to daylight or so forth I wonder if it kind of sharpened the imagination and made the act of reading more intimate somehow so that was something else that kind of played through my thoughts as as I was writing the book what is the overall kind of process that you use when you're you're for like your editing and your writing so do you mean like in terms of um how do i structure the day or how do i go about researching writing or just just generally all of it uh, generally all of it let's let's just let's hit it off <laughs> okay well i think as we've established i love interviewing people face to face and i think the problem is that is it also means that it's a great method of procrastination so like I said, I'm in my happy place, I'm out there, I'm sitting in someone's front room and I'm, I'm having these wonderful immersive conversations about World War II. But of course, you can put off the actual writing. So there comes a point, I probably generally tend to do about six months of solid research. Then I go back to my computer and I think, okay, I've got to put my bum on the seat and actually start putting words down. Yeah, there's no magic to writing. I think it's just, it's a process. And it's always difficult to begin with when you have these characters who you don't feel like you know very well. I sometimes feel like it's making small talk at a party where you don't know anybody. You have to just keep showing up every day to the and committing yourself to writing something every single day until these characters become more fully fleshed out in your mind and um, you kind of get into the psyche of it. So that's what I do. And the writing side of it generally takes me about six months for a book. And then of course the edits come in, but it's a constant process. You know, I never say there's a start or a stop time to research. Um, it's like icing a cake or adding layers. You're constantly going back, learning new things, um, weaving that into the narrative. So, you know, even now I, I, I set myself a goal with the Little Wartime Library of interviewing 100 librarians. And ostensibly I did that to begin with because I, I realised whilst I was researching that Bethnal Green Library was 100 years old last year. And I thought, well, what better way to celebrate the centenary of this grand old lady of literature than by interviewing 100 librarians, which seemed like a great idea at the outset. <laughs> then, it, <laughs> then as I started going, I thought, well, this is quite time consuming. But it was really interesting. And so I really lost myself in the research of interviewing all these wonderful librarians whose true stories, so many of which are woven into the book. So I'm still, I'm up to 86 now, so I'm still interviewing librarians. So even though the book is out, I'm still researching it. It's not a linear process. I'm not very formulaic with it. I just tend to do instinctively what feels right at that time. And I was going to bounce back to the quotes that you had from the librarians because we read uh, the Little Wartime Library with our Chapter Chat Book Club, which okay. is a combination with WJHG TV and uh, the Panama City Beach Library location. Everyone adored the little intros into okay. the chapters. Yes. Oh, and then to okay. see like little segments, just kind of just little subtle things woven in like Clara, she put the black paint on her shoes. It was part of the quote that was in there. So you could kind of see the, the ties. And it was also wonderful to really represent what it means to be in librarianship even today and part of the community that 
not everyone thinks about. So I thought that was so lovely to have a conversation with our library patrons about, and everyone adored the book. So brave oh, reviews from our book club. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I'm so happy you, you picked up on that. And it wasn't until about halfway through writing a book and interviewing all these incredible library workers, all of whom I could have written a book about individually, that I suddenly thought these have to have a place within the book. These librarians, you know, who do such incredible work, you know, they're frontline workers, aren't they? I'm telling you this, you know this, the kind of social and outreach work and the vital community work that librarians do. And I felt it would have, it was really remiss if I didn't include it within the book. This is, you know, the, the Little Wartime Library is essentially my love letter to librarians and, and libraries, really. So I wanted to make it much more rooted in library work and I felt that actually having those quotes at the start of each chapter would help to cement the themes contained within the chapter but also pay homage to librarians and celebrate their their work the only struggle I had was which to include because you know now, now I've interviewed well getting up to 100 librarian interviews and obviously there was 25 chapters it meant I had to leave a lot out but I'm hoping maybe I can resurrect them in the next book <laughs> Yeah, I was curious if you were going to incorporate them all together in some other way. <laughs> yeah, well, funnily enough, I'm, I'm actually in the process now of starting a, or planning a podcast called From the Library with Love. So, yeah, so I thought, well, that might be a good way of using up those wonderful interviews that I did um, and, and, like I say, celebrating the work of librarianship. So that's, that's planning now. I'm in, I'm in the process of planning that now. Oh, I'll keep an eye out for that. <laughs> great, great. I'll have to interview you. I can tell yes. you. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, actually, yeah, I'd love to do that if that's okay. Anytime. Both of you, that would be great. So during that, that process of interviewing everybody, what, what do you think makes a great library? A great library? Oh, gosh. I think what makes a great library is a great librarian. Um, I think it's the people that work there that set the tone and I've been to I've been in so many libraries since this book has come out promoting the book doing library talks and, and every library has its own unique personality but it always seems to me that the best frequented and loved libraries are staffed by people who really understand their communities they're almost holding a mirror up to the issues that are being experienced on the streets outside their library so I've been to some really dynamic libraries where the people, you know, you walk in and you can almost feel the love, like straight away, you're just enveloped by it. They're people that are intimately connected and they know everybody by first name and they know their likes and their dislikes. And there's always women who have made homemade cakes and brought them in. And that's social work to my mind, you know, like I, like I said before, that, that library workers our frontline workers they're used to dealing with the mentally ill and the disenfranchised and the vulnerable and the lonely and but often um, a library worker might be the only person that someone sees all day and they seem to have that emotional intelligence or like a kaleidoscope of skills including a great sense of humor that enables them to deal with that which makes me realize that in some ways a library worker is a, a citizen's advice bureau worker a social worker a confidant a counselor a friend and I see that being played out in libraries day in, day out. And so, yes, of course, it's lovely to have well-stocked, well-funded, you know, libraries stacked with technology and rooftop bars and, and all of these sorts of things, of course. But it's the people within it that really shape a library and shape and shape a community, I think. Did you, uh, like, through, through those experiences, what was this kind of strangest thing that you found that a library did? Oh, gosh. So, so it depends where you're looking at. I mean, some of the libraries in England, unfortunately, have had such bad cuts to the library system that, you know, there's a lot of anger really, and, and a lot of what people are having to do is, is sort of firefight. So one librarian I spoke to, she's they, they, part of the library has been given over to a baby clinic. So babies are weighed in their, in their library. So that shows you like how libraries are expected to be everything to everybody. So I was quite kind of shocked by that but then there are other libraries that are well supported and well funded that are doing you know really imaginative there's a great library called um the story house here in england and they do everything from cinema nights and theaters um interactive plays um reading groups zumba clubs you name it they're putting it on um and it's wonderful it's really innovative and and really kind of next level librarianship 
libraries often are kind of having to think ahead and follow the trends and be like, okay, how can we bring people in? And, and then also having the tie to where we do a lot of social work elements where we're not social workers, but we do have to navigate that world. Of course. And I think it ties back into what was happening during the second world war. So I, I saw, you know, obviously so much has changed in those in the sort of 80 years that have elapsed since then. But I think our fundamental relationship to books and reading has not changed. You know, what we get out of a book and reading the same in the Second World War as it was during the COVID pandemic. And so we saw librarians during the, the COVID pandemic, as I'm sure you knew, kind of changing roles almost overnight and helping out to people in need in their communities, delivering books and medicine and checking up on people that that have no one else so and it was the same during the second world war we saw librarians reacting with agility and creativity and understanding that if people can't get to the books they must take books to the people so for example during the second world war like we saw in the underground library at Bethnal Green there were libraries popped up everywhere in hospitals um, prisoner of war camps allotments London got its first mobile library and I love that this is one of my favourite little lesser known libraries. This incredible library bus was opened up midway through the Blitz and the librarians there put 4,000 volumes on these polished mahogany shelves in an old bus. And I always think what could be more gratifying than the thought of a, of a library bus bumping through London's, you know, cratered streets, delivering books to people in bomb sites and rest centres and ARP units. And, and at the unveiling of this library, the travelling library, the mayor said that People without books are like houses without windows. And I really love that. And so I think I, I have this fresh respect for librarians, but especially seeing the way that they reacted um, and the way they embedded themselves in the local culture and local community during the Second World War, as it remains today, you know, 80 years on, we're still doing the same thing. So, so much respect for all of you and what you do. <laughs> And this is your first title released outside of the UK. So what has that whole process been oh, like? Wow, amazing. I've got to say, I've written, um, so The Little Wartime Library is my 11th book. Um, so I wrote, I've written a series of fiction and nonfiction also set in the East End that's only really come out in Great Britain. And so suddenly The Little Wartime Library is published in Germany and Italy and Spain and France and Canada and the US and Australia. And it's been amazing because I get to talk to people like you. I get to connect with readers on a global level. I cannot tell you how, for an author, how joyful it's been. Um, and, and, you know, seeing people's love of reading and libraries, it's universal, isn't it? I think, you know, there isn't a, I can't really think of many countries in the world that don't have a library. And I think that's what's resonated with people. This, so I love the thought of someone in, you know, Australia or, or America reading about my little East End library. And was there anything that you had to like change or uh, for an international, you know, release? Like how is, you have a new release date? Um, how is that? Yeah, so they're all staggered, the release dates. So mm-hmm. the book came out, came out first in um, the UK. It came out in last year. And then in America, it came out this February, and then it, and then about a month later, it came out in Germany. So it's sort of a staggered release. But one of the things I think I'm really grateful for in these translations is that not a lot has been changed. And I'm really grateful to my American editor for not doing that because there's this unique East End vernacular um, that sometimes means you might have to look things up on and Google what this means or that means. But it's very, I, I hope it stays very true and authentic. To, to the language that was used at that time. So yeah, it's been an amazing, I've got to say an amazing eye-opening process. Um, you, you mentioned that journalistic nature of the interview process that you, you did. So mm-hmm. from that journalism background, how did that kind of influence your writing style? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I suppose for me, it's really important to have the authentic voice. So I have always gone out and interview people face to face and I've always felt a duty of care to represent those voices so anytime that I've used stories or that have been inspired by two people I always go back and check that they're happy with it I enable them to read it first I think it's really important to be accurate to be authentic to avoid anachronisms in stories and so 
for me, I suppose almost actually, I feel more like a journalist first, a novelist second, perhaps. That that's who I am at my core. I've always felt like a journalist. I love going out finding those stories missing from the history books, you know, unearthing those little treasures. So I think I, I'm guided as a journalist. I'm guided that guides everything that I do, in a sense. And I think that's probably why at the back I have so many articles. My editor said she'd never edited a book that had so many true stories at the back. But it felt like a really good place to put the true story behind the story. And also write essays about reading for victory and include those voices that maybe I couldn't necessarily use in the novel, but I could give them a voice at the back of the book and have all those articles and extra content. And um, I read all the extra content. So if you were wondering, and I loved it. Yeah, I was like, I, oh, I was so like, well, you could stop it here, but this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's extra service, I think. It's like a nice way of... Um, contextualizing what you wrote in the novel and I think a lot of people say have said to me and fed back to me oh I like the book but what I really love was the content at the back to know that it's based on a true story to know about the research to uncover the real people the fact that Mrs Chumley was a real woman you know and the Bethel Green tube disaster did happen you know that's how history for me is real and personal and how we keep on learning from it so I hope that, it, that they they are compatible together but yeah, that's a good, that's an interesting question. Thank you. And an element that is in the Little Wartime Library is the idea of what, I guess, is a good book, uh, especially like what women should or should not be reading from the time frame. As librarians, we support the freedom to read. And the U.S. has had a lot of book banning this year, which is oh, kind of surprising. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Forever Amber in this book, which I had not known about until reading this. I'm wondering if there's a spike in reads of Forever Amber by Kathleen <laughs> Windsor. And how did you decide to incorporate kind of that concept of, of um, reading something that, you know, is fun and might be a little bit more risque, but it just gets all the women together chatting and enjoying reading. Yeah. Wow. That, that's a great book, isn't it? One of the librarians I interviewed actually said, oh, have you ever heard of Forever Amber? And I, I confess I hadn't at that point. And she said, oh, you must read it. And funnily enough, she was the same librarian that started the chapter heading with, you know, people come into the library for an experience. Who are we to judge what that experience is? And it was really her that opened my eyes to this censorship and sort of very um, misogynistic condescending attitude that, that was in place at the time of the Second World Wars, but certainly in between the wars, where it was felt that women needed to be pointed in the direction of edifying fair, as it was put to me, that, that women weren't rational, they were irrational, emotional creatures that couldn't be trusted to make their own reading decisions. And I really struggled with that when I discovered that that was the prevailing attitude. I'm not saying I disbelieved it, but I went along to the London the British Library and I took out back copies of the Library Association record which is like the in-house publication and I read through all the, the publications relating to the war years and it's true you know I was reading some and I might just read one quote out from a male librarian that I read leading up to the war and he said and I quote um, if women have not enough energy left to read anything but trash we should be doing them a real service if we prevent them from reading at all I thought, wow, I, I was I was stunned and at this attitude. And there was another, a female librarian actually, who wrote in the Library Association record in 1942, Hilda McGill from Manchester Public Library wrote of the surge of housewives who find themselves with more time on their hands as their husbands are away serving and end up in the public library. And she wrote, at 18, she's probably read the light novels of the day. As literacy has increased, so has the standard of light reading depressed itself to something approaching the nadir of imbecility. And I thought, wow, these, so this is true. This is really the kind of attitudes that, that were swirling around at that time. And then I got to thinking, well, what would I want to read? If I was a woman holding down three jobs, uh, you know, life is dirty and grey and bleak and full of bomb sites and rationing and privation and I'm living off powdered egg and I don't know when I'm going to see my kids next. What do I want to read? I want pure escapism you know what's it? it's going to take me out of my world and so when I heard about Forever Amber I thought yes that's the kind of book I think that I would want to read if I was a wartime woman sitting down a dark underground tunnel <laughs> and so I actually read the book um, I ordered it um, and I got this fabulous wartime copy that came through 
And I know because when I opened it up, I could smell that musty sort of mildewy smell. And it's a fabulous book. I, I don't know. Have you ever read it? I hadn't heard of it. And I, oh, I saw that it was often compared with... Um... The Gone with the Wind. It yes. kind of has that Gone with the Wind epicness of it and the romance and yeah. Well she's she's a she's a kind of um so Anna Sinclair is the central protagonist. She's this ruthless, sexually scheming strumpet, as she's called. And she and it causes absolute like furore when it was published. And in fact, when it came out in it came out in America first, midway through the war. And instantly, 14 US, US states banned the book as pornography. And the first was Massachusetts, I'm going to list this for you, whose attorney general cited 70 references to sexual intercourse, 39 illegitimate pregnancies, seven abortions, and 10 descriptions of women undressing in front of men as reasons for banning the novel. Uh, needless to say, it sold over 100,000 copies in its first week of release, <laughs> and it went on to sell over 3 million copies. Um, and I think it was just the tonic that wartime women needed. You know, Amber Sinclair was behaving in many ways like a wartime woman. You know, she was romping her way through the ruins of Restoration London. It's set during the, the Great Fire of London and the bubonic plague in the 17th century. But then I, I kind of pictured myself, well, what would I be like if I was a wartime woman sitting in, war, in the war years reading about this woman and the way that she behaved? I think it was just what women needed it felt quite zeitgeisty at that time so wonderful wonderful but I really recommend reading it I want to see but, if the, the sales have gone up after your book <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know that yeah it was an American an American author obviously Kathleen Windsor who um who wrote it she was fascinated with British history and she really did an amazing job because when I was reading it Midway through COVID, I might add, in, in the middle of a lockdown over here, no one was leaving their homes, everyone was terrified. And reading those passages that were set during the bubonic plague felt kind of eerie because she was talking about how the London theatres closed down and, you know, the, the, the kind of sound of the dead cart flopping over the cobbles and ringing of the bell. It kind of gave me, it was a bit eerie to read midway through another pandemic. But I think it taps into this feel, this feeling that women loved historical fiction almost for the sense of reassurance that we can get from reading about the past you know and so too this shall pass it's nothing that we haven't weathered before but yeah it's it's fascinating I really do and as characters go she's just utterly irrepressible and Sinclair <laughs> I can say that from our collection we do have that in our digital hoopla style so if, oh okay there you go. <laughs> But I mean, that seems to be the quickest way to get somebody to want to read something is to tell them that they can't read it. I mean, that, that's <laughs> yeah. just historically for us. I mean, the moment something becomes taboo, it's like, do you have it? Yeah, of course, of course. And you see that in history, don't you? What was that other wonderful book, uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, that was released, I think, in the 1960s about a woman, an upper class woman who had an affair, a steamy affair with her gamekeeper. You know, that got uh, banned straight away. And I remember my mum telling me as a teenager, she had to race around everywhere trying to get her hands on a copy of it. You know, so that's uh, that's the best way to secure sales, I think. <laughs> and you want to talk about it with your friends, of course. And it's, I mean, it's really no difference. I mean, when Fifty Shades of Grey would be, I guess, the, the most closest modern day sure. example that, you sure. know, we, we have not given up on our love for just trashy stuff. I mean, it no, is. No. It's the stuff of life, isn't it? Listen, it's, you know, we, we need, people love trashy stories. You know, they love stories that, about risque women, about sex, you know, that's, that's the stuff that sells, isn't it? And it's, I mean, that book was banned here, sold, sold millions of copies. Harry Potter, while not on that trashy sex end, but it was, you know, hit hard over here when it first came out because of the, uh, the, the, the witchcrafty nature of it with a lot of religious groups. So, I mean, and suddenly it's like, you know, top of the charts. So, I mean, the moment you tell somebody they can't read something, you might as well have just get, start printing that book because it's going to be, it's going to be. Yeah, forbidden, you know, illicit, forbidden subjects. Of course, we're going to gravitate towards it. It's the, it's the nature of humanity, isn't it? Yep, we want that apple. We want the forbidden, yeah. <laughs> we're all back in the Garden of Eden when we're reading these things, right? Was, was Fifty Shades of Grey banned over there in America then? Some libraries, yeah. yeah. That was, it. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, wow, I didn't know that. Funnily enough, when you read Forever Amber, in comparison to Fifty Shades of Grey, it's actually quite tame, relatively speaking. I mean, it was quite sensational for its time, but when I read it, I, I struggled to see why it caused this scandal, but then I had to put myself in the in the, the position of wartime women back then, and it was groundbreaking for that time. But yeah, fascinating stuff though, isn't it? Yeah. So a lot of times uh, you can see the writer in the work they, they create. Uh, so how much do you think people can learn about you from reading your writing? Oh, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Um, I would hope not much, if I'm honest. If, I, if they have, then I've not been doing my job properly because I'm here to hold a mirror up, really, to what it was like to be a wartime woman. This shouldn't be my personality, my life. You know, it's why I've gone out and interviewed hundreds of wartime women is because I want it to reflect the richness and complexity of their life. I almost feel like I'm a, what's the word, a conduit, I suppose, or something for, for, for these stories to come through. And I think that that's not the role of an author to put their personality through, but to reflect the women whose lives they're writing about. Um, I suppose I would hope that there's a, maybe if anything, it would be, you know, I said maybe a slight sense of mischief, a bit of fun. I love the character Ruby. You know, she's just, you know, bold, blonde, brassy with a laugh as dirty as a drain. And she, she was very much inspired by Minxie, that lady I told you about earlier. She's the inspiration for her. So I suppose she's the one I identify. She's like the one I'd like to go out for a drink with or go to a dance with. Um, this chat is so well with my next question. So I'm going to throw it in there already. This is my thing for you. I for you. I was going to say, I, I personally fit probably the Clara Button personality. That is totally me. Okay. I was, wish I was a Ruby because Ruby is amazing and I want to hang out with her as well. We should all go for drinks. And the book is really split between these two characters going through their thoughts. And how did you decide to kind of go through the lens of these two characters who are both friends they both are librarians but they're so different at the same time they are and it felt quite a good sort of one was a good foil for the other you know I think quite often you can have women who are very different in their personalities but still are very bonded and who, who could be you know immensely good friends and I think that Ruby gave Clara a lot of courage and Clara was quite a stabilizing influence on Ruby and I think it's good for contrast to have two women who are so completely different in their outlook and their personalities. You know, Ruby is a woman who thought nothing about sleeping around in wartime Britain. She carried a knuckle duster in her handbag. She drank too much. She smoked. You know, she had inappropriate relationships, something Clara would never have done. And yet they have this common ground. You know, they supported one another. Their friendship was really important to me. Um, it's, it's one of the central love relationships I suppose if you like it within the book and that they nurture one another but but actually Ruby I think for all her bright and brittle kind of and brassy exterior is quite vulnerable on the inside and I hope that over the course of the book we see this evolution of their characters and Clara becomes stronger and tougher and Ruby almost becomes a bit more broken down by the end of the book as we see her demons you know with, with the drink and, and the loss of her sister coming to haunt her and, and Clara then stepping in to help her. And that's like the best friendship, isn't it? You know, that women who, are, who understand each other's differences and flaws, but still love the other one anyway. It was a perfect balance because sometimes when there's a two split time frame, I like one better than the other, but this is one where I equally oh, enjoyed no, reading them. So that's a, that's a hard balance, but you did it perfectly. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. And then I think I... Yeah, I had to sort of, because I loved Ruby so much, because she was based on these amazing women that I met, you know, Minxie and all these women that used to sort of make the most of their life and full of chutzpah and life and swagger. There was a temptation to maybe lean in a bit too much to Ruby, but Clara being like the still point in a turbulent world. And she had that kind of quiet strength and quiet courage that maybe tempered and calmed Ruby down a little bit. So yeah, that's really flattering of you to say that, that you liked both equally. You know, I'd like to I'd like to join a reading group like hosted by Clara and go for a drink with Ruby. Yes. <laughs> I fear I wouldn't be able to keep up with her though somehow. 
one of the things that we said, we'd like to do some fun stuff here. We play a game that I'm not sure what it's called there, but we call it, uh, we have a different name here, but I have to call it because Sarah doesn't like me cursing, Kiss Mary Ditch. Um, I don't know what it means, but I like it. <laughs> so what I have is I've got, I've got some different categories that I've hidden behind some clever little titles. I'm gonna let you choose one of those. Okay. Inside that category, there are three items. Okay. One that you will then take those three items that, that and you will rank them like, love, and one you have to get rid of. Okay, like, love, one I have to get rid of. Okay, got you. So your, your categories to choose from are circulatory systems, <gasps> eat fresh, what is it good for, and quitter strips. Oh, on the basis that two of those, I don't really know what they mean. I'm going to go eat fresh. Okay, here we call them subways. I understand you all call them tubes over there. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, oh, like as in the sandwich retailer. Yes. Well, no, 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 no. Well, Subway is what we call our underground. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant Subway, the fast food chain. I, I, that's how I got you with the Eat Fresh. That was their <laughs> ah, logo at one point. Okay, okay. Uh, so we call them Subways. I understand you all call them tubes or undergrounds over there. Um, yeah. So I have you ranking tube songs. Uh, so we have Miles End by Pulp, Warwick Avenue by Duffy, and going underground by the jam. Well, going underground by the jam is love, obviously. How can you not love that song? And I'm really sorry, I haven't heard of the other two. So I, I um, okay. you know what? We can skip that one. We can go to a different one. Um, okay. Circulatory systems, war, what is it good for? And quitter strips. War, what is it good for? World War II movies. Oh, okay. Uh, the Great Escape from Here to Eternity and bed knobs and broomsticks. The Great Escape is love, definitely. Um, from here to eternity, yeah, like that. Bed knobs and broomsticks, that's the, um, I don't think I've ever watched it, so that's gonna be the one I'm gonna get rid of. Oh, Angela Lansbury as a witch in wartime London, who chasing off the Nazis as they stormed her little seaside town. Oh, oh I, wow, I, you know what? I'm going to have to read that because Angela Lansbury is an East End girl by birth and it's the Blitz, so that actually sounds right up my street, but good tip, thank you. I'm going to watch that. Yeah, it's an old Disney one, so it, it jumps from, you know, live action to old school Mary Poppins style animation, oh, lots wow. of singing. Oh, it's, wow, okay, I'm watching that. Thanks, thank you. <laughs> um, Quitter strips would have made you rank strange things that have been used as bookmarks. And Ooh. circulatory oh. systems were fictional libraries. Oh, can we do the quitter strips? I love the sound of that. Okay. I, I could almost write a whole section about that after interviewing all those librarians. Stockings, bacon, and sticky string. <laughs> well, on the basis that I've heard of bacon, a strip of bacon being used as, uh, as a bookmark, yeah, I love that one. Uh, stockings, I definitely like. And what was the other one? Sticky string. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if that's something that translates well, but it's basically we have canned string where you can spray it and it shoots out and it's just like. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I like the sound of that one. Um, somebody once, told, one of the librarians told me that she once found it was like a pineapple chunk that was attached to a string that had just been left inside the book as a bookmark and it sort of welded itself to the pages. But that's such a good topic, that whole area of, of bookmarks, isn't it? What's the it weirdest is. thing you've ever had left as a bookmark? You know, I, I've I've had some good ones. We found money as bookmarks, so nice. I, I will never complain about that. Usually it's it's like old tickets or... Uh, receipts. Receipts, receipts are pretty are common. Ones. Doctor's information is, for some reason, very popular. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't understand why, you know, that's your go-to thing, but it is. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. What was the weirdest thing I have heard? Oh, somebody once told me that, you know, like dry, it's called cuttlefish. It's the sort of thing you put in a budgerigar's cage. It's like dried fish. Somebody found one of those tucked in a book as a bookmark. And I love another librarian told me, she said, they always used to have a little competition in the libraries to, to guess the identity of some of the people that left the books because they used to absorb the, the odour of the, the previous. So sometimes a book would come in and it would smell of, lavender or roses and you know they think oh a, a, you know romantic fiction lover and another librarian said that people that borrowed westerns you know like the cowboy books they always used to come back smelling of muscle rub and roll-ups <laughs> I thought I quite like that the book you know becoming like you know absorbing the personality of its reader <laughs> oh I love it I didn't even think about that 
it's a good way of thinking of it, isn't it? It's a, another librarian story. And there was someone, I think it was a United States librarian, but she documented everything that came through as a bookmark. And so it it was a very interesting, almost like art collection. Um, wow. She like kept all the objects and then would photograph them. And it was, it was cool. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'm going to have to look that up. So there's so many classics included in at the Little Wartime Library. So you've got Secret Garden, Treasure Island, Black Beauty. What is your favorite classic children's book? Oh, for me, it's got to be The Secret Garden. I loved it as a child. I used to go around. I loved it so much. I became so intrigued with the concept of hidden rooms that I used to go around my house dreaming that I might find a, you know, a secret door to something, trying doors just in case. And I even used to have dreams, like lots of dreams about finding extra rooms in my house. It seemed to be like a recurring theme in dreams. And I think that was all triggered by reading Secret Garden. I just loved it. And another one, if, if I may be permitted, I growing up, I was also obsessed with horses. You know, we, we couldn't afford one. Grew up in an inner city area. There was no room to keep a horse or a cat, never mind a horse. But I loved them. So I used to read Black Beauty. And I think part of a child reading is that you can read you can live that life vicariously, can't you? You know, you, you might not be able to afford a horse, but you, if you read it, you can kind of you can own that horse vicariously. So, yeah, that was another one of my big favourites, Black Beauty. How about yourself? Oh, I really enjoyed The Secret Garden. Um, even like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that was a favourite. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Drew, I was, and this wouldn't have gone back to World War II, but Nancy Drew, I think, was a, a favorite of mine, as yeah. well as uh, Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> yeah, and you know, another one of my favorites, um, and this is where I used to learn a lot about America growing up, the Sweet Valley High series. Do you remember that? They have redone Sweet Valley High, so now there's the Sweet Valley Girls, it's like graphic novels, really? that they're just released the second one soon, okay. so... The oh. twins are back. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so I just, you know, as a teenager growing up in London, for me, this was the epitome of glamour. You know, mm-hmm. these twins, I, I was just like, wow, I would love to go to America. If that's what it's like, <laughs> I want to go. I know. I'm sure it's not. That's how it was in my head. <laughs> a teenage girl. <laughs> What's so great about a lot of those classic books is they still hold their own now you know if you read and I did reread quite a few of them for the for the book and they're so good you know they're just so brilliantly written like a lot of the Enid Blyton's and you know uh, Wind in the Willows and The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe all those beautiful classic books are just as thrilling now as they were for me you know 40 odd years ago. It really made me want to do one of our chapter chat book clubs with a classic because just to kind of see yeah, what a good idea. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the whole thing with, with the line, the witch in the wardrobe, now you've said it again, it's that idea of being flung through the back of the wardrobe into this magical world. It's a sort of a theme like with the secret garden, isn't it? It's a portal mm-hmm. to the world, which in a way a, a book is, isn't it? You know, a librarian once said to me, you're not buying a book, or you're not borrowing a book, you're gaining a new life. And that is true, isn't it? That once you're in the duration of that book, you're absorbed into a completely different life. All the portals. Yeah, a gateway to another world. So all the portals, any book like that. <laughs> From what I understand, one of uh, one of your your other hustles is ghostwriting. <laughs> uh, My side hustle, yeah. So what goes into taking someone else's story and making it not just yours, but theirs as well and capturing voices that are true to them, but while still being true to your own? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really difficult one that I haven't actually ghostwritten a book for a while now because the sort of novel side of things took over but yeah for a while for at least five years I was ghostwriting other people's stories and that is it's very difficult because the, the good ghostwriter I think does not put their own personality or voice over them and I think it comes down to active listening I've thought about this quite a lot and often obviously I would go and I would sit with these amazing women who have led extraordinary lives and sit and listen and immerse myself in their world. And I think there is an art, I'm not saying I've captured it, but I'm trying to learn from it. There's an art to active listening and that's listening with your heart as well as your ears. And it's also listening to somebody talk and accepting that if there's a silence, you will not fill it. You will allow them to fill it because, and it's not about what you think about what they're saying. You shouldn't be sitting in your mind thinking, okay, well, this is what I'm gonna say next. You just have to be a blank canvas and listen and and really absorb yourself in their stories, not fill those silences. And what happens 
and then keep going back you know it's a very immersive experience ghostwriting somebody's story you have to spend hours and weeks and months listening to their story and also taking them out of so when I interviewed I ghostwrote the memoir of a lady who um, in the 1970s set up or helped to set up one of the world's first domestic violence refuges or well, certainly in Britain it was um, she fled a, a very violent relationship and set up this incredible women's hostel that went over time went on to be refuge which is the national domestic violence charity and we would sit and interview and I would sit and interview in her front room but then over time I thought okay we're not really getting anything new here so we got up and we moved and we went for walks and I interviewed her I walked her around her old neighborhood I took her to a, the childhood village that she grew up in I interviewed her friends, her family, and then suddenly you build a much bigger picture. You know, like it's like a, it's like doing a sort of a jigsaw, if you like. It's like putting all the pieces together to get a much fuller understanding of what goes into this person. Because memory is a funny thing, right? Isn't it? We don't always remember everything in a chronological, neatly ordered way. And so I think for me, it was about going and taking them to as many different places as I can to unlock. The memory and that's what you are you're the key in that lock you have to open up their memory box and then do your best to write the story in their voice and not your own and and you mentioned that one had kind of heavier topics even just doing the one-on-one -on -one, uh with the domestic violence and you bring in some of the heavy topics into the little wartime library including ptsd and depression and uh, violence against women so you don't sugarcoat the real issues. Can you uh, share a little while why you decided to include these into the story? De definitely not. You know, I don't think history should be sterilized. I think that we, like you say, not sugarcoating it, representing it as best you can. And I think one of the things I began to dawn on me is this cycle of poverty and violence that a lot of women in the 20th century found themselves locked in. And so many of the women that I have interviewed as research for my novels over the years have experienced either firsthand or, or seeing it, domestic violence. One woman I interviewed told me it wasn't even known as domestic violence when she was growing up. There wasn't that phrase hadn't even been coined. She said around their way, it was called flying plate night. You know, on Friday night, the men would get their pay packet, a lot, some would go to the pub and then it would spill out, that violence would spill into the home. And so I just kept hearing this again and again. Um, Another lovely lady that I interviewed called Mitzi was one of 10 children growing up in Bethnal Green. And she said that one of her earliest childhood memories was hiding under the table and seeing her father swing her mother around the kitchen by her hair and her trying to hit out his feet to get him to stop. And she told me, I begged my mom to leave him. I, I begged her and said, please, he, he's going to end up killing you. And the mum said, well, and, you know, with all these children, where would I go? Who would take me? And so the more you hear that, the more you feel it might be difficult and unsavory and it might make uncomfortable reading. But if I'm going to write with any authenticity about 20th century East End, I have to address that. Because for women back then, you know, there were no refuges or safe houses or sanctuaries that they could go to. They relied on the kindness of friends and neighbours to help them out. So, yeah, what, why would you not write about that? This is what women were experiencing. There were some uncomfortable scenes there, and all of those scenes, I might add, that I wrote that included violence were taken directly from memories that were shared with me. But I try, I hope, to give it some levity that there's light and shade, that I don't leave the reader too long in the darkness, that I can pull them out and then we can, because that's life, right? You know, it is mm -hmm. lightness and shade and dark times and good times. But I'm glad you picked up on that. Thank you. And it is something that we talked about with our, our book club and and just the, the mother that we were like, oh, she should have left. But then everyone's like, but at that time, that's not something you talked about. That's not something you would have done. So it really kind of put us back into the time frame. Yeah, for sure. Because there was no, there was nowhere that a woman could go, you know, and women that did leave were incredibly brave and faced a very uncertain future. It wasn't, you know, society just wasn't set up for women back then. And so, yes, of course, I had to, to and, and, you know, with things like the, the Bethlehem Green Tube disaster as well, that felt really important to include because so many people were affected by that, by the, by the events of that dark night. So, you know, I hope people didn't feel it was too all pervasive and repressive, but, but I feel as a, as a writer and a reader that it's important to reflect with accuracy and authenticity what women experienced. It's a good balance.
And so that leaves me the, the great joy of trying to segue out of, out of dark topics into, uh, <laughs> into a little bit more lightheartedness. I like how she, she traded that. <laughs> yes, uh, gonna do some rapid fire questions here. Do you learn by watching or doing? Both. Can I say that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You can I, say whatever you want. Okay, all right, yeah, a, a good mixture of both, I think. Something you wish you had written. Oh, the book I've read recently that I absolutely loved, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony, and I can't pronounce his surname, Dor? Dor? Yes. Dor? Yeah, that was such a magical book. If you've ever read it, or if you haven't read it, read it. It's just wonderful. Um, do you correct people's grammar? No, no, I wouldn't dare to. Something you wish you had done. Oh, last year I climbed Ben Nevis, which is Britain's highest mountain. And I went up the, I won't call it the easy track because it wasn't, it's called the pony track. But on the way up, I could see another route up the mountain, which is a ridge walk, much more dangerous. It goes along the North Face. And um, a part of me kept looking at that difficult track thinking, I wish I'd taken that. So that's maybe next year. <laughs> if I can find the courage to do it. <laughs> Uh, something you enjoy quoting the most? Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. I think um, I read a wonderful survey when I was researching called the Mass Observation Society that interviewed wartime women. Um, and there's quite a lot of sweet little phrases and quotes in that. So if you've ever read it, the Mass Observation Society interviewing wartime women, have a read of that. Favorite bad movie? I don't know whether you describe this as a good or a bad movie, but I really love The Outsiders growing up. You know, the Brat Pack movie. Mm -hmm. I made my husband and children watch it and they said it was terrible, but I love it. Stay golden, Pony Boy. Oh, you've made my heart sing. <laughs> just saying that. I I my heart did a little leap just when I, you said that. I, I, I'm, I'm insulted. You think that's a bad movie. <laughs> It's one of the all-time greats, but when my kids watched it, they were groaning, saying, this is terrible. I was like, how, that is sacrilege. How can you say that? We can see the sunset from our side of the town. <laughs> so what are you currently reading slash watching? Oh, I'm watching an amazing um, new series on the Disney Channel called A Little Light. And it's all about, have you, oh my God, it's so wonderful. It's a, it's a retelling of the Anne Frank story but told through the, through the perspective of the secretary who helped to hide them, who was Otto Frank's secretary at the time. It is so good. It's so immersive. It's, the writing is sparkling. If you want to be in wartime Amsterdam, my God, that will take you there. So that's what I'm watching. What am I reading at the moment? I'm reading The Little Coffee Shop of Kabul, which is a bit of a different one to wartime um, by Deborah Rodriguez. And it's wonderful. It's about um, a little cafe, you know, in Kabul. So that's my favorite read at the moment. Oh, it sounds lovely. And yes, I really do want to see that show. I've heard wonderful things. Oh, it's so good, honestly. It's, it's one of those compulsive viewing. And before that, I've got to say, I was watching Yellowstone. Oh my goodness. Probably the best thing I've ever watched on TV. And before, and then because of that, I watched 1923. And because of that, I then watched 1883. You're describing life in my house right now because my wife has, has started binging oh. all those. And I, I was one of those shows I was on the fence about. And she just, she says it gets better over time, but the, that it, she learned that that's a show that you're better watched as it was like airing, where it was like one a week kind of thing, where you, you see the patterns of the over drama, where it's just that first couple seasons of Yellowstone, where it's like, do you like drama? Have some drama on your drama. Yeah, yeah it's, it's many layers of drama, that's for sure. And you can become a bit drama fatigue, but oh, wow. I mean, watching that, I just think, I think I could have been a cowgirl. I'm sure I could have been a cowgirl. Why wasn't I a cowgirl? Conversations I that I've had this week. <laughs> I think I, I need to talk to your wife. <laughs> Yellowstone Appreciation Society. <laughs> oh, it's just so good. The writing, the, you know, the beautiful imagery, the landscapes. Love it. One of the questions I love asking because it kind of gives us a glimpse of what's coming up in the future here. What's the strangest thing in your search history? Oh, God. I probably just have to look at my search history. Um... 
I think it probably, so obviously at the moment I'm researching a book set during the occupation of the Channel Islands in Guernsey. And they have a funny little saying where they call each other Jersey beans. It's a really weird one, but in the search history is what is a Jersey bean? <laughs> That's my last one. It's a funny saying that, um, that they call each other. So I thought, oh, I'd have a little Google of that. So what is a Jersey bean? So a Jersey bean is how islanders describe each other. So there's a lot of island rivalry between Jersey and Guernsey. So in Guernsey, the Jersey people from Jersey will call the people from Guernsey, Guernsey toads. And the people from Guernsey call the people from Jersey, Jersey beans. It's a sort of slightly reductive, you know, in other words, you're a bit simple, you know, it's just a sort of a, a mild insult, really. So there you go. That's a little um, insight into Channel Islands, <laughs> social history and culture for you. And we are a library podcast, and we know that libraries are important in your life, but how have they impacted your life? Oh, my goodness. Wow. I, I, you know, interviewing all these librarians over the last two years has, how can I just say, it just given me enormous appreciation that we have this free service. You know, I, I thought long and hard about what makes a library service unique. And I think there's very few places that you can go on your high street that you can go from cradle to grave where you can get access to all these free books. You're not expected to, to spend a penny. You're not even expected to buy a cup of coffee. And yet you have the whole world is opened up to you. And I, there are very few services like that in anywhere, if at all, really, are there that, that are so completely neutral, um, democratic, you know, open and welcoming to all. And I, I interviewed this librarian. He said, you know, it's a terrible business model, isn't it? If you were to go on, you know, Dragon's Den or any of these programs and pitch this as an idea, they say, no, there's a terrible idea. It's not a great business, but it is it's so unique, isn't it? You know, I think libraries are one of our greatest ever inventions. They are what it is to be human. And I think a realisation of that and the, how I can interact with that and how that can affect my life has changed everything for me. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely changed the course of my writing career. Yeah, and, and, and just opened up this world to me that I didn't know really existed and, and also given me a love of, a really appreciation of, of library workers and how they're essentially... A library is a microcosm of life, isn't it? So I suppose librarians, in a sense, are humanitarians, first and foremost. So I think that understanding that, I hope, has, has benefited me as a writer, as an author, as a journalist, for sure. So thank well, you. And we appreciate you highlighting us in, in the Little Wartime Library, for sure. My pleasure, honestly. So as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, no, I just would. Well, I'd love to know what you think of the Wartime Library. If you've got any comments or stories that you'd love to share, you know, people often get in touch with me after they've read the book to, to tell me the story of their mothers, their aunts, you know, their, their, their grandmothers. Um, and I always welcome those stories, those social histories of gold dust to me. So please do get in touch if you've got a story that you'd like to share. And yeah, I guess that just to mention the book that's coming up next, the Wartime Book Club you have me back to discuss that, I'd love to come back on. But that's set during the occupation of Jersey during the Second World War. And it's set in St. Helier Public Library, which is one of Britain's oldest public libraries. Um, and obviously the librarians there did not have to contend with the Blitz or bombs, but they did have to live under a Nazi occupation. And so the, one of the big themes of the books is censorship and how um, this secret book club that, I, that the island librarians opened up to allow access to, to the escapism of reading. So that's coming up and I'd love to, I'd love to come back on and talk about that. We can have a, a more meaty conversation about censorship perhaps. It's so important. No, that sounds lovely. Yeah, keep us posted. I will do. I definitely <laughs> will. Thank you. What a fun podcast. I love doing this. Thank you. This has been such a treat to have you on. I've been waiting. So I'm so excited to finally be able to talk to you. Bless you. And listen, anything where I can, somebody will talk to me about Paddy Boy is always a good experience. You, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't know why kids just don't appreciate the good things nowadays. They don't. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> We're revealing our age now as well, aren't we? <laughs> I feel like I need to sign off by saying stay gold. <laughs> there you go. Amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Kate Thompson, for joining us on Unstacked. The Little Wartime Library is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased to your favorite bookstore and online vendor. Check out her website, katethompsonmedia.co.uk. 
That's K-A-T-E-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-M-E-D-I-A dot C-O dot U-K. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.